Tapping the Keg Daily is live for Tuesday. It is January 9th. We're talking Milwaukee Bucks, how to fix them. They are in crisis right now. We will also discuss the Green Bay Packers and Dallas Cowboys. First look at that game for the wild card playoff or the super wild card playoff, which is weird. Uh, and then lastly, we'll talk about the national championship. Michigan is your national championship. We'll talk about it from a Packer perspective, from a Big Ten perspective, from a college football perspective, and get into all of that. Uh, before we get going, just a reminder, social media, tapping the keg on Twitter, tapping the keg, or axe, whatever the fuck it is, uh, tapping the keg uh, sports on Instagram, as well as TikTok and Facebook. Uh, TikTok, we're over 900. Uh, axe, we're almost at 1,000. Should probably do a giveaway of some sort uh, to get myself over a thousand. Uh, so stay tuned for that if you're not on the X platform. Uh, and if you're already doing that or you're new to the program because you are following on social media, we are doing this four days a week. Uh, TBD on our fourth day. Uh, if may, uh, pro- actually, I can tell you this right now. We're not potting tomorrow. Uh, we'll be off tomorrow, so we don't have a podcast Wednesday podcast Thursday, either it's with Mitch or without Mitch. And then Friday, we'll have a podcast as well. So taking the middle of the week off, uh, no games tonight uh, for the college basketball or pro. We have Marquette uh, on Wednesday night. So we'll talk about that on Thursday show, as well as everything else. If it's with Mitch, I might have to do a double pod, which is okay. I'm ready for it. Uh, I'm prepared for it. That's what I'll give to you. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. Drop this in the group chat if you think people want to listen to something a little bit different. Uh, I know uh, Bart, Bart Winkler, who I respect, who's now doing CBS, uh, he's, you know, can't do his show every day. Uh, maybe we're a replacement, right? Maybe we're your replacement for you uh, because of his new role, which is super exciting and good for him and happy for him. Uh, but I just offer an, offer an alternative uh, to, to the boys. Uh, so if you know somebody who's a big Bart fan, maybe... Maybe they would like us too. Um, and maybe they won't. Who knows? But uh, I, that's my pitch. Uh, let's get in to the Milwaukee Bucks issues. The Milwaukee Bucks have lost four of their last five games. Uh, that is never good. Um, you know, losing streaks are never fun. They usually happen uh, in the NBA season, in the baseball season, in the football season. It's very rare to go unscathed and not have some sort of period of losing. But there is a different between. There's a difference between losing close games, losing games where it's down to the wire, versus looking very apathetic. And what the Milwaukee Bucks look like is apathetic. The new year started, and the Bucks seemingly have kind of given up on Adrian Griffin. Now, I wouldn't. I think that might be a bit of a reach. Might be a little bit of a hot take. But I I do have major concerns. I do worry about this team right now because what I am noticing is the older guys really don't necessarily have it. Now, does that mean that Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, Brooke Lopez, they're all washed up, right? Are Are they just all washed? Have they basically grabbed the bag and said, you know what? We have nothing left in our tank, which happens to championship teams all the time in all different sports where teams just have guys who've been there forever. 
that they're comfortable with, that are part in, of the team chemistry, that are ingratiated into the community, yet they somehow, some way, just lose it. And it happens all the time. So I'm, I, I'm sympathetic to that. But there was a stark difference on Monday night between the old guys and the young guys where the Milwaukee Bucks came out in the second half Chris Livingston played his first extended minutes of the NBA season this year and played really fucking well. And then you also had Marjan Bochamp, who strung together yet another good game. That's been maybe the only positive during this losing streak. Andre Jackson Jr. did all right. Um, I think the Andre Jackson Jr. hive, if you will, is maybe a little, a touch overrated as well. Um, he's certainly kind of took taken a step back. I think there's a reason why Andre Jackson Jr. is only playing about 12 minutes a game. Um, and, and it's mostly because he, he get, yeah, he can guard one to four, but he's not necessarily, you know, this lockdown defender. I don't think like when I watch him, he's putting guys in hell. Like watch what Andre Jackson Jr. is doing on defense and then watch Jalen Suggs. Jalen Suggs may be defensive player of the year. Um, he's a guy that I think deserves a lot of credit for what he's doing out on the perimeter. Uh, but I, I do think that like there is a difference. And I know that that's like an extreme example, but you understand my point. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I'm trying to, to understand and trying to get you, you know, on board with the idea that the Milwaukee Bucks have a lot, have this young versus old debate. And now are these young guys good enough to basically win games and be part of a championship roster? Probably not right? Um, it's probably better suited for a team like Orlando or a team like, I'm trying to think of, another, not Oklahoma City because they're pretty damn good. Oklahoma City last year would be an example of it, not this year's Oklahoma City. Um, but, you know, those teams that are kind of in that 7 to 11 race, you could see a guy like Beauchamp, Livingston, and others who are, who are playing there. And like, the thing about Livingston is he's not necessarily a everyday second round pick because the guy was a five-star guy a guy that you know was definitely like in the you know top rankings when he went to college so he just had an awful year at Kentucky and we've seen guys have bad years at Kentucky and then turn on to be great guys it's kind of why John Calipari is sneakily a bad not a bad coach but he's not this great talent developer he's more of a talent curator than anything else so how do you infuse it? And that's on Adrian Griffin. And I think Adrian Griffin has not done a good enough job with his rotations. The rotations have been a problem really from the start and they haven't gotten better. And we are 37 games into the season. And at this point, they need to be better. They need to, they need to be better. And that to me is the first step in fixing the box is infusing the young with the old bringing them all together on the court at the same time, trying new lineups, not necessarily ha having situations where you don't have Giannis and Dame on the court at the same, Giannis and Dame on the court are on the bench, pardon me. Like the Bucks are not deep enough to have Giannis and Dame on the bench at the same time. They just are. And I, I think Chris Middleton's had a really nice January and December, but Chris Middleton is not the guy he used to be where I think he can be the, the number one when Giannis and Dame are on the bench. You need to have Giannis or Dame 
out there. Dame playing 12 minutes in the first half, first quarter is not gonna work. I know Damian Lillard wants to do that. I know that makes Damian Lillard comfortable, but he's fucking up the rotations. And right now, Milwaukee needs to basically have everybody all in. And there needs to be all hands on deck. And we need to try different shit. And I realize playing the Boston Celtics is not exactly the time to try new things, but maybe it is. Maybe you just throw it out and you say, all right, we're gonna roll the ball out here and you guys are just gonna play your shit. Do what you wanna do. Don't worry about play, like play random basically, which is Mike Boonholzer, which is ironic that we're talking that way. But I, I really think that the Bucks have a couple days off here to reset, to think about, all right, what do we need to do? And again, going back to the old, the Bucks just played what, five games in seven nights or something around, along those lines. And they looked weird. They looked worn out. And a Jazz team that's pretty young absolutely came out and pulverized them. But that also, the foresight, Griffin needs to have the foresight to be like, okay, I have an older team. I can't ride these guys for the fifth game in seven nights. I need to have one of these guys, you know, Bochamp, Livingston, uh, Jackson, play a little bit more. You have Damian Lillard out with, an, out with personal reasons, which I, I do want to also get to. Um, you got to do some different shit. And I think the lack of innovation from Adrian Griffin has been truly disappointing. It's been just, it hasn't been what, what I think all of us hoped. And I, and the Terry Stotts departure at the time, we, you know, we kind of wondered, well, is it Stotts, you know, not necessarily wanting to coach again? Is it Stotts thinking that he was still a head coach? I'd still stand by Griffin getting rid of Stotts because I, I think when you have a guy kind of gunning for your job, that's going to create sort of a fracture and a fissure. And I and again, I, I go back to John Horst and I, I just wonder if this team was built for Drew Holiday and they did not expect Damian Lillard. And so I think Stotts made, it made sense to get rid of Stotts at that moment and say, okay, we're going to start it all over. The Bucks have hired new coach Trevor Gleason who just came on staff last week. And so maybe part of this is they're getting comfortable with, you know, working into inside Trevor Gleason's system, who is more of an offensive focused coach. Uh, who knows, right? But I, I do think that there, this still can be salvaged. I just think that there is a back to the drawing board and it needs to infuse the young and the old. As for Damian Lillard, he was out for personal reasons on Monday night. Now, personal reasons can mean a lot of things. Uh, we don't want to speculate. Damian Lillard going through a divorce. Damian Lillard has spoke at length on how hard it is to be away from his children. Um, Damian Lillard, you know, whether it maybe he had a bad custody battle, whether he had something else, it could be something completely unrelated to basketball. However, when you hear personal reasons, that is usually a red flag. That is usually the start of something. As a buddy of mine said on Axe last night, I'm waiting for that Chris Chris Hayes think pee, or a hit piece to drop. And it's like, yeah, we're all sort of laying in the weeds of when Chris Haynes is going to release, Damian Lillard's unhappy in Milwaukee. Now, I don't know if Damian Lillard can double down on his unhappiness, right? Damian Lillard was unhappy in Portland. Now he's unhappy in Milwaukee. And Damian Lillard just, is Damian Lillard never happy? Is he a disgruntled superstar? And he's kind of in the Durant 
you know, mode where he's like, all right, maybe I can pull a KD. Maybe I can pull a Harden and get myself somewhere else. I will tell you, the Milwaukee Bucks will not trade Damian Lillard to fucking Miami. So Damian Lillard can get that out. Honestly, if they were to ship Damian Lillard out, it would be Oklahoma City. It would be New Orleans, a team who has picks, a team who could use a guy like Damian Lillard. They, well, Oklahoma City doesn't really need Damian Lillard with Shea Gildas Alexander, but you get my point. It It's going to be a team that has picks. Minnesota would be another one that I, I think would be in the conversation, and it'd be a team in the West. It would not be a team in the East. I will guarantee that. But I also don't think Chris Middleton at this point of his career is really a number two. So you would need a number two to come back. And it, you know, obviously it would be ironic if they traded C.J. McCollum for Dame Lillard, but I also don't think C.J. McCollum would be the straw that stirs the drink for this Bucks offense. Um, the Bucks right now do not have a point guard if Damian Lillard wants to leave. So if Damian Lillard speaks that he's unhappy, is that, all right, we're going to get rid of Adrian Griffin and then we're going to hire Terry Stotts? And my whole point with Terry Stotts was he's never really done anything in the playoffs. Terry Stotts is a great offensive mind, but he's he's really not been a great playoff coach. Like it, it's not like Terry Stotts is this savant and he's done so well in in the postseason. He's always come up short. He's never made a finals. So how can we just be like, all right, we're going to give the keys to him? I mean, that's the same worry with Kenny Atkinson, right? That's another guy that's been brought up. And I just don't know if there would be a situation where you could fire Griffin at this point of the year. The only thing that I could think about would be, and, and see, this is where the NBA schedule kind of fucks the bucks here with a, you know, a firing, is the all-star break is the, really the only time because you have all this time to say, all right, we're going to get rid of the coach. We're going to basically reset, recalibrate. You guys are going to go to all-star, assuming Giannis and Dame both make it. That And then after you come back, we're going to kind of assess everything and basically put everything on the table and try to right this ship. That's still a month away. We still got a long way to go before we even hit that. We have the death trade deadline before that. And just trying to trade and try to get the Bucks new talent is going to be really difficult because all of these teams see the Bucks as maybe used assets whether it's Connaughton, whether it's Portis, whether it's Brooke Lopez, who I think might even be on the table. Um, they all look like guys who have been worn out and guys who are potentially washed up. Now, the only situation that I could see where a team might look at Connaughton, Portis, Lopez, and others and say they need a fresh start and not try to dip into their youth would be teams like Phoenix, LA, Golden State, who are all sort of in the same boat as the Bucs where they're having disappointing seasons. I'd argue that all three of those teams are having more disappointing years than the Milwaukee Bucks because they're hovering around 500. They are not necessarily, you know, out to this 25 to 12 start. Now, I know the haters would tell you, well, the Bucs had a weak schedule and they basically padded. I don't give a fuck. I really don't care about that. Your record is your record. Are the Bucs a little overrated at this point? Yeah, they are. But I would rather be the Bucs than those three teams I mentioned. But I think that does open the door for trades. I think that the Warriors could talk themselves into a Andrew Wiggins deal to Milwaukee that would involve Connaughton and Portis coming back as well as picks. And you got to do the math on it. You got to go into the trade machine. But I think that could be a real opportunity for Milwaukee 
because it would be a change of scenery trade. I don't think Phoenix really has a lot at Grayson Allen, which is hilarious. And Grayson Allen's had an all right year. I don't really want Yusef Nurkic. I don't think Nurk would help the Bucs at all if you went Nurkic for Lopez. That, would, to me, would be the only example. For the Lakers, you know, a guy like Jared Vanderbilt would be tremendous. I know Jared Vanderbilt hasn't really had the season that you'd want out of him. I, I have no real interest in Cam Reddish. I think Cam Reddish is one of the more overrated guys, but he is a clutch guy, which matters to the Bucs because the Bucs have been acquiring clutch talent. I don't think that they're going to get, try to trade for LeBron, uh, in which there was a, a, some fake LeBron trades that Bill Simmons did on Friday. That kind of blew my brain. Torian Prince would be a guy actually that I would, I would actually love for the Bucs bench. Um, so yeah, maybe it's, you know, Jared Vanderbilt and Torian Prince. And then, you know, again, I, I don't have like the trades in front of me, but you know, maybe that's somewhere where they can do it because to me that those are the teams that John Horace needs to look at. John Horace to me should not give up any of the young assets. I know what some are saying that they're like, well, you've got to give up the young assets to basically help this team. If you can get an immediate impact player by giving up Bochamp, by giving up Andre Jackson Jr., by giving up that second round pick from Portland, which is really, I think, very valuable, um, then do it. But I mean, that really hamstrings you. And that's where I think, you know, taking, not, I don't even want to say taking advantage, but like working with those teams that are in the same boat as you, I think can really help because I also think they can all relate. I think when John Horst picks up the phone and talks to Rob Palinka, they could have a bitch session about where they are right now. I think the same with James Jones. I think the same with Mike Dunleavy Jr. Although who knows if Mike Dunleavy Jr. wants to do business with the Bucs, uh, given Giannis's tackle. But still, like, I think that they're all going to have the same conversation. And so that's why I think it could be easier to trade with those teams. Now, maybe that's just another harebrained theory by me. And I've realized this weekend that I'm a kind of a theory guy. Um, maybe more than I need to be. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, do I need to stop giving, giving theories on fucking everything? Uh, but anyways, um, that's an internal debate for my own self. I, I think that the Bucks can salvage this. I think that this is fixable. I do not think that the Bucks are headed for a complete tailspin. Again, is it a good thing to be playing the Boston Celtics on Thursday? Absolutely not. I do like they get a couple days to prepare. I do like that they get a couple days to reset, take a deep breath. But I think a lesson was learned on Monday night that this is an old team and that you cannot ride this old team this hard, especially when Mike Boonholzer never did that. And Mike, and there was good re there were reasons for Boonholzer to not do that. And we liked some of them and we also hated it at times. And there's a time and place for everything. And I think, and this happens a lot in life, like everything, where we go from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum. And really, we just want to get in the middle. And we just want to find like common ground. That's what the Bucks need to do. Griffin needs to take some of the things from Bud. Like he should have rested everybody last night. Like I understand that sucks for the fans, but Giannis should have been down. Dame should have been down. Chris should have been down. Like have those guys sit have the young guys play. It's five out of seven games. I think it's more than enough understanding. It's a bitch of a schedule with the Bucs in the last week. Let the guys sit, 
And then you have fresh fucking legs for Boston. Then they are, have almost a week off, which is unheard of in the NBA, for their game against the Celtics. But instead, we rode the old guys and we got our asses kicked. Adrian Griffin is learning lessons every time he coaches. And that's what a new coach does. They learn lessons. They're like, all right, well, I won't do that again. But the Bucks are too good for a coach to continually learn lessons. He kind of has to know them right now. And that's the problem. So can the Bucks be fixed? Yes. Do I worry that they might not be able to? No, because I, I do think they're going to make trades. The question is the assets are limited and the Bucks have a very tight window to threat. But I trust that John Horst can do it. And we'll see what happens when the Bucks and Celtics get together on Thursday night. Moving on to the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys. What a playoff matchup we have on, on our hands on Sunday. Uh, as we talked about on yesterday's show, um, I, I don't think any of us really expect the Packers to be here. They're playing Dallas. And I think if you were to ask Cowboys fans, who would you not want to play? I think it's the Green Bay Packers. And I think it's partly because Aaron Rodgers has beat this team in Dallas. These fans have watched the Packers end their postseason multiple times since 2010. The fact that there is Juju in AT&T Stadium where the Packers won the ultimate prize of the Super Bowl, um, that the Packer-Cowboy rivalry has been more on the side of the Packers in really the last decade plus since, you know, like mid-90s when the Packers beat them inside Lambeau Field. And it was, the that Cowboys team was still revered and they... The thought was that the Cowboys and Packers were going to meet in Lambeau in the NFC Championship. The Packers finally had home field. They finally had their opportunity to play the Cowboys. And then the Cowboys fell apart and got beat by Carolina in an absolute stunner. And that's really where everything changed. And since then, Green Bay has kind of had the upper hand. Dallas has not eliminated them in the playoffs. Dallas has had moments where they've fallen apart. Remember, we thought in 2007 that it was going to be Packers-Cowboys for the right to play the undefeated Patriots. And the Cowboys, again, stepped on their dick and lost to the New York Giants, and the Packers got a home game. And we were, and everyone at that point was like, oh my God, the Packers get this home game against the six-seeded Giants team who hadn't been playing well all year that just came together at the right time. Like, this is the perfect opportunity. Favre's going back to the Super Bowl. It was all out in front of us, and then they lost. And it was one of the more stunning losses in Packer history. So like the this basically Dallas has we've had Dallas's number and Dallas knows it. And this could be a new generation. It's a new quarterback. It's Jordan Love facing Dallas Cowboys for the first time. Now Dallas Dallas and Green Bay have played in the Matt LaFleur era a couple times and the Packers have been successful besides one. I believe Rodgers lost to them in I think that was 2019. It might have been 20 18 that so that might have been McCarthy but the Packers have had a lot of success over the Dallas Cowboys and that has to just scare you as a fan because that's a team that you worry about so yeah the Packers since 2010 are eight and one against the Dallas Cowboys if you extrapolate it out to 2000 so the last 20 years the Green Bay Packers are 10 and three against the Dallas Cowboys now Prior to that, just for all that's that's fair, the Dallas Cowboys were 13-3 and against the Green Bay Packers in the 80s and 90s. So you see how this rivalry has completely flipped 
on its head. And, and yes, the Packers, the last time the Cowboys won in Lambeau was 2016, where Dak Prescott, that was the game I was referring to. So that was a while ago. That wasn't LaFleur. That was a long time ago because Favre was in there and Rodgers played like absolute shit in front of Favre. And I forget why Favre was there. Might have been his first time back at Lambeau Field. But I distinctly remember that game because I was working for Associated Bank and I was doing like in-game social, which is a wild thing to do for a bank uh, for the Packers. But you know, the Cowboys, the Cowboys won that game and then the Packers were able to beat Dallas in the 2016 playoffs. That was the Jared Cook uh, catch and then the Mason Crosby kick to get the Packers into the NFC Championship game where they would then get absolutely smoked by the Atlanta Falcons. And since then, the Packers have won games and they've won games on just different things. Like in 2017, it was Aaron Rodgers finding Devontae Adams with 11 seconds left in probably the most memorable moment of that 2017 season. Remember at that point, we were like, oh God, this Packers team's really good. This Packers team kind of has what it takes to you know make a run. And then I believe the next week, Aaron Rodgers breaks his collarbone. And then that season is in the, in the trash. Uh, 2019, you had you know Matt Lafleur's first experience with this rivalry, and Aaron Jones rushed for four touchdowns. That's where the bye bye came in. Uh, Aaron Jones also grabbed his dick in 2022. So these teams don't meet a lot, right? And you could argue that this is probably the best team the Packers have faced this season. Uh, no disrespect to Detroit, I think Detroit's pretty good, uh, but I, the Cowboys are better. Like the metrics wise, if you look at their EPA numbers on both sides of the ball and their success rate numbers, they're all, they're top team. And so this is going to be a real challenge for the Packers. And you can ask yourself, are we overrating the Packers after two strong games against the Vikings and Bears, two teams who are not in the playoffs? And the Packers, have they gotten fat against bad teams? I'd say yes and no, because I'd point to the Chiefs. I understand the Chiefs aren't the team they were in the past, but you still beat the Chiefs. You still beat Patrick Mahomes. You still beat the Lions on the road. The Green Bay Packers are a young, spry, fast team. The Green Bay Packers on a fast turf with the Cowboys can compete with Dallas. In everything has to be like Aaron Rodgers and it has to just you know go one-to-one. Aaron Rodgers' first playoff game, the Packers lost 51-45 in overtime where Carlos Dansby... Uh, picked off Rodgers and ran it back for a game winner when Rodgers got a face mask and nobody called it. There, I'm not saying it's going to be 51 to 45, but it, it easily could be 38 to 35. Last team with the ball wins this game because I think the Packers can score on the Cowboys. I think Lafleur, you know, coaching with Dan Quinn in the past, I think Lafleur knows Dan Quinn's defense. I think that that is a major help to the Green Bay Packers. I think the Packers should have their full allotment of guys. We'll see about Romeo Dobbs. We'll see about Christian Watson. But those are the guys that really are the two that are missing, you know, that in terms of that have had nicks and bruises. Their defense, for all that I know, is fully healthy. Um, they they have they did okay against Dak Prescott. I think Dak Prescott had a pretty good game against Joe Barry, but they kind of made second half adjustments last year when you know they played in Lambeau Field. I was at that game. That was an excellent football game, by the way. Uh, probably one of my favorite Packer wins at that point that I've watched in person. These two that I've seen this year were were special as well. But you know, it, it it's definitely. I, I think I want to just stay with the offense here. I know I was kind of all over the place talking through the, the the defense too. But 
in terms of the offense, I, I think that they can do a lot against this Cowboys team. I, I know the pass rush is really good. Um, the Packers offensive line has been solid really for the last few weeks. Um, Rasheed Walker has definitely come on strong. Zach Taylor, or Zach Taylor, Zach Tom is a all pro. I think he's a really good right tackle. I don't think he'll actually be an all pro guy for, for the NFL. But I, I do think that you can make sure that Zach Tom is going to do his job. And yes, at some point, Micah Parsons is going to get his. Uh, Demarcus Lawrence is going to get his. But Jordan Love is very good in the pocket. He can escape. He just has to make sure he holds on to the ball if he tucks it and runs after the fumble last week. But I, I do think that that is, that is there for the Packers. And they were really run blocking. And having those two tight ends in Kraft and Musgrave really help when it comes to running the football. Not a lot of teams have that ability to have you know blocking tight ends like Musgrave and Kraft. And that can also go out into the pass game. Matt LaFleur has been in his bag. He feels confident, you know, with Jordan Love. And I think those guys are just on another wavelength than most play caller quarterback combinations that we have left in the NFL playoffs. So I, I really like the Packers offense heading into this game, even with the success that Dallas has had all season. And remember, Dallas, you know, as, as much as this is the best team the Packers have faced, Dallas has not really done well against their top-tier schedule. You know, they, they fell apart against the Bills. They got their asses kicked by the 49ers. They had a good win against the Eagles. But that Eagles team, I, you have to look at them a little bit differently. They were in a shootout with the Seattle Seahawks, who did not make the playoffs. The Rams, they buried. But the reason they buried the Rams is because the Rams have god-awful special teams. And the Ram, Matt Stafford, you know, was tried to force things in. And it led to pick six. And that, to me is really the difference in this game is Jordan Love has to keep the guns in the holster. Jordan Love can let it sling, but we, we can't got to be careful with the rocket balls with Deron Bland. And that to me is my biggest fear in this game is that Jordan Love's going to try to force one in and he's been really good and hasn't had a lot of interceptions, you know, in the last, what, seven or eight weeks. But that he forces one in, Bland picks it off, runs it back for a touchdown. And basically that is the difference in the game. And the Packers lose by seven or 10. And we just look back and say, if it wasn't for that pick six, the Packers win this football game or they get damn close. That to me is my biggest concern in terms of offense. In terms of the defense, yes, Joe Barry's defense has looked better. Uh, someone pointed out that Joe Barry's like Mike Boonholz or where when he knows he's going to get fired, he just completely changes everything, right? It completely, there is an entirely different sort of schematic look and it's like, okay, well, I promise you guys I can change. Now, Dak Prescott did not have a great 2022. He was not good against the Packers in Lambeau. Dak was 27 for 46. He was 265, uh, Q, uh, quarterback rating of 78, QBR of 42. He had three touchdowns, but he also had two interceptions. And remember, those touchdowns came early on. Dallas got out to, I believe, a 14-0 lead in that game, if I'm not mistaken. No, it was 7-7. Uh, it was 14-14 at halftime. But Dak's, two of Dak's pre touchdowns came in the first half. And you got a 35, or no, Dallas had a 28-14 lead. Packers and Rodgers came back in the fourth quarter. That's right. Um, and then the Packers scored 17 unanswered to win this game. Now, CeeDee Lamb went 
off in the game against the Packers. Uh, he had 11 catches for 150 yards. This is before, and 15 targets. This is before CeeDee Lamb really sort of emerged this season. Um, that's something the Packers are going to have to look at. They're going to have to examine, you know, what they're doing. I Did Jair play in this game? Jair did. And he had seven tackles, which is a lot for Jair, and shows you that he was getting, you know, he, he had some issues. And I think you probably had Rasul Douglas more on CeeDee Lamb if I'm, you know, thinking about that team last season. Uh, but Joe Barry is definitely going to have to figure out how do you defend CeeDee Lamb. Now, the what they were running against the Vikings, again, granted, with Jaron Hall and Nick Mullins, they were bracketing Jefferson and they were making everybody else beat him. I think that that is the way to do it. I think you shut down CeeDee Lamb and you let Brandon Cooks, you let Michael Gallup, you let Jake Ferguson sort of have the yardage and you keep CeeDee Lamb at bay. And maybe you can't, but I think you have to avoid at the very least the explosives and not let Dallas sort of, you know, overwhelm you. I think Green Bay starting out fast is a real, is a real sort of important thing. And Dallas has not necessarily been great in the playoffs. This is their first home playoff game since the 49ers game in 2021 where they lost. Um, so they there is an internal pressure where I think Dallas feels tighter on the road, uh, at home, pardon me, than they do at home. I think that they, they just have this sort of like, it's an queasy feeling, if you will, because I, I think they know the pressure that Jerry Jones puts them on and the nervousness that the fans have. And, you know, we, I've heard it talked before, and I think it's true where fans have, of teams where with long championship droughts, you can feel the, the tightness. You can feel that everybody's like, the Brewers are a great example of this. Like, when the Brewers went down early, like, you could feel in the stadium that everyone was fucking on edge and everyone was nervous. And I, I think that that happens with Dallas too, just given all the fan base and the diehards that you have. So we'll have to see. I, I think it's going to be a really good football game. Like, I, I, I truly think it's last team with the ball. I think the Packers can win. I don't think it's crazy if you think that way. I think set, I think the number is like seven. Packers are, are underdogs. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, I think this is a you know, a one score game. And I think it's, you know, into the three to six range. Um, I think it's going to be an absolute classic. I, I have, to me, if I had to power rank and maybe we'll do that, I, well, let's do this. Actually, we're going to do that later in the, the week. I have a, like all of a sudden I'm like, ah, that's a segment right there. Um, and we're going to, we're going to keep that segment uh, for later in the week. But yeah, let's just say I, I, I think very highly of this game. And I think the rest of the NFL world will. I think the rating on this is going to be huge. And the Packers Cowboys always is. But the NFL really has it this year. As my buddy said, the script writers are back in their bullshit. Stafford versus the Rams. Packers Cowboys. I mean, that Sunday is loaded. Steelers Bills, I think, is exciting. The weather is going to be nuts in Buffalo right now. Uh, they're projecting like 50 mile an hour winds. Um, which kind of plays to the Steelers. Um, and God, the Steelers find a way to win. Fuck. That would be crazy. And then you get Steelers-Ravens in the first, second round. But yeah, I, I feel I feel good initially. Uh, we'll see how the injury reports you know, go. By the way, just a quick reminder, don't overreact to injury reports on, on Wednesday. Injury reports are worth reacting to on Friday. Uh, but on Wednesday, we don't, don't exactly worry about them. So 
yes, much more to be talked about with Green Bay and the Cowboys uh, as we go on this week. And I cannot wait for Sunday. It can get here like now. All right, let's wrap up the show uh, with some thoughts about the national championship. National championship happened on Monday night. Michigan is your national champion. They win 34 to 13. Uh, The Wolverines, I I don't necessarily know if I'd say they dominated. Uh, They certainly dominated the line of scrimmage. And that was really the story that they hit big, big runs early on. And the three big runs really carried them. And Washington could not give Michael Penix enough time. Michael Penix was in complete hell and his body sort of broke down there at the end. Um, you know, the Michael Penix roller coaster is interesting because I think, you know, before the playoff, it was like, oh, Michael Penix, top 50 guy, but probably not a high first rounder. And then he has the game against Texas and everyone's like, okay, maybe, yeah, fuck his age. Like, it's fine. Like, we'll draft him, you know, first 15 and his knees. And then after what happened on Monday, I think everybody's back to, okay, well, maybe a late first rounder, early second rounder pick. And not necessarily the guy that, you know, we thought Michael Penix was after Texas. Um, And the edge pressure was there all night for Michigan. And, you know, the right tackle for Washington, Rosengarten, was terrible. I mean, just a pathetic game. He got screwed on a hold. That was a big play. I mean, that also was massive. You know, he gets called for the holding. Uh, They ended up, you know, completing a pass down the field. And I think that's where the interception happened with Sandstrell. But they had an opportunity there to really push it down the field earlier on in that fourth quarter. And that was a bad, that was a bad call. But I think when, you know, he's been struggling the entire game, you kind of expose yourself because the ref just believes that the edge rusher doesn't get there, uh, that it it doesn't work. Um, As for you know, the lens of it from a variety of ones. College football, I think, in general, it, it's a weird way to end the end the 14 playoff because you have a Michigan team that has a lot of controversy. You'll have people that say Michigan should have an asterisk. You have people who are waiting for the banner to be vacated uh, given the cheating scandal. Um, I, I think that that is a little bit rash. I think that's a little bit sour grapes. I think that, you know, Michigan, you know, did what they did on the field. And even when everything got taken away from them and they still won football games, they still beat, you know, a good, decent Maryland team on the road. They beat Ohio State. They beat Alabama in overtime. They beat Washington. Like, it's not like Michigan, you know, after this cheating scandal came out and it was like, oh, we're, you know, we're a terrible team now. And we're like a mid-tier Big Ten team. They continue to kick everybody's fucking ass. And you at least have to appreciate that, even if the cheating stuff makes you mad. But I I also don't know if it's going to get vacated because I think a lot of teams cheat. I think at everybody cheats in some capacity. And Michigan just was dumb enough to get caught. And they did it too much. And they pushed it too far and got too close to the edge. But I, I think every team cheats in some capacity. And you could say, well, Charlie, you know, the, what about the 90s? What about that? Well, there was cheating going on there by paying players. Pay, play, you know what I mean? Like pay, players were paid and that was cheating too. And you could say, well, that's right and just because these college kids deserve to get paid. Well, yeah, they're getting paid now, but they, they, are, they weren't back then. Do I think college football is broken in a sense? Yes, I do. I think that college football 
needs to figure out this transfer portal thing. We talked about it on the podcast. I forget when we did that. Like middle of last week where my suggestion is, is how I think you should do it is you need to declare if you're in the transfer portal or you're opting out a week after the se- your season and then the Bulls are selected after that process. And the Bulls get to choose the teams with the fewest opt-outs or the best, you know, in terms of draw, you know, obviously a team like Wisconsin, for example, you know, will be a high pick for people. And then you just tell the Bulls like, hey, you are ranked this way. We might change it year to year, but we're going to give preference to the the Bulls on the first. We're going to give preference to different Bulls, different areas. You basically have to restructure the Bull process and rethink how you're doing it. But that's, to me, the only way to kind of solve this conundrum. I agree with the idea that we shouldn't have free agency and we being college football before the season ends, which is a Lane Kiffin quote. And he's right. But what do you do? You have second semester. How do you circumvent second semester? And that's the problem. It's like we're still pretending these guys are student athletes and they're really not. They're just athletes. And so that, that to me is the, is the fundamental issue is how do, you, how do you do it after the season? Second semester for some schools has started. Some schools start next week. Some schools start the week after. How, that's not enough time. So how do you, how do you fix that? What do you need to do to sort of fix that in terms of the transfer portal? I have no idea. I think you're putting yourself in a really tough spot given the calendar. So I, I think that that is something that the that college football world needs to figure out. Now, if they say, all right, these guys can roll late, that the, the basically all these fundamental bodies are okay with that happening, then, and that basically they finish school late, I don't think, though, that they're going to do that. I, I, some schools will be okay with that. SEC schools might be, but I do think that there's going to be the people in the academic world that say that's bullshit. That's unfair. And so I, again, I think it's a real problem. Even though if you're mad at Michigan to add the big 10 of this, like you have to be, this is good for the big 10. This is a great way for the big 10 to start their new media rights with Peacock, with Fox, with CBS, uh, the new Big Ten with Oregon, Washington, UCLA, UCLA, USC, which is wild to think about. That This is a great jumping off point for the Big Ten. They are springboarding into the season. Michigan versus Washington next year is going to be must-see TV. We are all going to make sure to watch that. That is going to be a premier game on NBC. This is a great you know, step forward for the Big Ten getting their first national title since Ohio State in 2014. That is a big deal. And that is something that the Big Ten can carry with them. And the Big Ten has sort of finally been able to see through through it. And the SEC does not have a title. And I think that that is always good for college football when the SEC doesn't have a title because the SEC is the monarchy. The SEC, pardon me, is king. But I I do think it helps college football when they they get knocked down a peg. I think that's important. I think that that fosters a good sort of semblance of of parity. And not like in the, like college basketball, for example, right? UConn wins the title. 
I don't know if the Big East was the best conference in, in basketball last year. I think it was pretty top-heavy with Marquette and UConn, but that's good, right? And the year prior, it's Big 12. And so you have that sort of diversity in conferences and diversities in styles. And it's not just the big, bad SEC every fucking year. So I, I think that's good. And even if, again, even if you're mad at Michigan, I think that, that'll help. You know, you can use Michigan as a recruiting tool. You want to play against Michigan. You want to play against the national championships. You, we, Michigan built a national championship team at Michigan. Why can't we do it at Wisconsin? That to me is like the the thing. And and I, I really I really think that that is a good thing. You know, for all the Big Ten teams, including Wisconsin. As for the Green Bay Packers, uh, I, there's a couple things that I have on my wish list you know, in terms of the Michigan talent. You know, Harbaugh said that he thinks he's going to break the record with guys drafted in the NFL. I think there's a lot of good NFL talent on this team. Um, I love Mikey Sandstrell, uh, the nickel corner uh, for the Wolverines. I think he is really talented. He's undersized, yes, but I think that he would be a great nickel corner for the Packers. Um, I wouldn't draft him probably higher than mid-second round, just given his size. Uh, but the guy is a complete leader, um, so maybe he goes earlier just given the fact that he interviews well and that he could be an immediate, like, see-on-the-chest guy, you know, in the first couple couple years of, the, of, the, of his career. Uh, Chris Jenkins, his dad, was an excellent defensive tackle. I don't really know if the Packers need a lot of D-line help, but if they were to part ways with Kenny Clark, which some think they might, uh, Chris Jenkins would be that solution. Um, and that would be a guy that Green Bay could draft, you know, in that first round, you know, around 2025, depending on where they finish in the playoffs. Uh, Jesse Minter, the defensive coordinator, is a guy that I, I really think the Packers should give a long look to. Jesse Minter is from the Ravens system. He's coached in the NFL. Um, now, if Harbaugh leaves, Jesse Minter, I think, will get some looks for the head coaching job. For the Michigan Wolverines, I think Sharon Moore too, um, just given you know the success that they've had this year and why hire external. I think you could kind of look at it similarly with Ryan Day, right? Like basically Ryan Day, and you can you know the Harbaugh quote about born on third base, and you could make that quip about either of those guys. But it was basically to keep sort of the consistency of what Har- what Urban Meyer had built, and I think you could do the same thing. So that might be off the table. But I do like Jesse Minter a lot and think that he could coach an NFL defense. I, I have no qualms about Jesse Minter being able to, you know, lead that Packer defense and be very successful in doing it. Also, you know, add to the fact that I don't know if he was at Michigan when Rashawn Gary was there, but, you know, I, I think that Rashawn Gary would obviously respond to a Michigan man, you know, taking over that position. Um, I think that would, would have a great impact. I know other people like Blake Corum. I think Blake Corum's all right. But I do worry about the wear and tear of Blake Corum. Uh, he's had, you know, obviously a lot there. And so I, I do wonder if that's going to be a factor uh, for Blake Corum. Uh, as for Washington, um, I even though their right tackle was awful, uh, Troy Fonalamo, I, I think I butchered that last name. But anyways, I, he's a good player. Um, and a guy that I think has been on a couple Packer boards. I'm still not convinced the Packers need a tackle early on in this draft. Um, but a guy that's certainly on the radar, if you will. Um, I, I don't, again, don't know if they need a wide receiver. Um, if they were to trade Dobbs or something like that, then maybe you get a guy like Jalen Polk, who's a complete game wrecker. You know, you just get sort of athletes, um, and that might be something they look at. Again, Dylan Johnson 
fun player. But again, let's go back to that quorum factor of the wear and tear that you have seen uh, with with Washington. I also like, even though, again, I don't know how much the Packers need in terms of frontline help, but back to Michigan, I love Mason Graham too. I think Mason Graham's a stud. Uh, they they have good players. I mean, they have really good players. And there are a lot of guys on that field last night that I'm going to be mad that they're on NFC teams or that they're on rival teams. And it's going to happen because it's just how it goes. But there are a lot of guys to like. And I'm sure I missed some. But that it was a it was a solid college football season. Um, I, I had a lot of fun. I you know next year look forward to it. I think it'll be even more fun. Um, and yeah, it, it's it was a good good way to ride out. All right, that does it for today's show. Back, like I said, back Thursday. Um, we'll take tomorrow off. Uh, if it'll be me, we'll talk about Marquette. Uh, we'll see if anything else comes out in terms of the Bucks. We'll do some more Packer Cowboys stuff. Um, and if it's Mitch, we'll maybe do some some similar, but probably Sands Marquette. And then you'll just get me uh, on the side for Marquette. So we'll talk to you then. Take care, guys. Have yourself a great Tuesday. Uh, stay safe, too, if you're in Wisconsin. Uh, a lot of snow. Not as much snow as I expected um, waking up this morning, but just keep yourself safe if you have to drive out there. Um, you know, take your time. No, don't be a hero. Uh, and if you, you know, don't need to drive, probably, probably a good day just to keep the car in the garage and uh, hang out at home if, if you can. So stay safe and we will talk on Thursday. All right, see you guys. Bye.